Hey, welcome to Discover Christian Church. We're glad you joined us today on our sermon podcast. Um, Be sure to check us out online at discovercc.org. Today, we continue a sermon series, Unbelievable, Four Truths That Help Us Imitate Jesus. Here is our lead minister, Steve Murphy. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. Thanks for coming out today to Discover or for checking us out online if you're doing that. Um, we are in the second week of this new series called Unbelievable. And I uh, just ask you to turn to John chapter 2 if you have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, um, they're free. Pick one up in the lobby. Um, we'd love for you to make sure you have the Word of God with you. Again, you might have the printed version, electronic version, whatever. Um, just make sure that you have the Word of God with you. It's a great, great thing to do. So I saw this um, shortly, I think it was sometime last summer, this picture. Um, I thought this was pretty amazing. So I don't know if you're into um, like car driving and stuff, but that does not look real good, does it? It's a school, by the way, in case you're wondering what that building is. It's pretty unbelievable. In fact, it is unbelievable. If you look really close, that was a staged thing. You know, you can see on the back, maybe it says, class of 2018, this was a senior prank that some kids did at a school. I thought it was pretty awesome. So that's just plastic tape there, and they got some bricks that were, they got the, they went to a local junkyard and talked to the guy, and he cut the body for them so that they could stage all this. So, you know, if you think the, the kids are not today making good use of their time, they're into like math and physics and all kinds of cool stuff. I just thought, wow, that's amazing. Today, in a, in a strange kind of way, we're going to look at how Jesus prevents what could be just a really bad situation that will wreck a family's reputation. And we're also going to see the actions and the attitudes of Jesus in that story, in that situation. And we're going to ask ourselves, how do we then imitate Jesus based on this idea? So, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And uh, we'll go through verse 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tell you, tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus said. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after the people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the very first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Would you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would give us clarity and boldness, both as individuals and as a church family. 
to see where we should follow and imitate Jesus based on this incredible, amazing story. In his name, amen. So we're going to just talk real briefly about some general things in the text. And the first thing, if, if you're like me, there's a, a word in verse 4 that kind of jumps out at you. And probably if you're the female persuasion, it really jumps out at you because it just seems odd. Jesus says, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? Does that jump out at you? If I said, Teresa, what is that to Teresa? What does that have to do with you and me, woman? We have to understand the context. Again, this is why it's so hard sometimes for us to understand what the Bible is saying. And the context is different. It's several years ago, obviously. It's a different culture. And some translations, in fact, will put the word dear in front of this, dear woman. So Jesus is in no way belittling his mother. Jesus consistently elevated the position of women, in fact. In case you were thinking, wow, that seems really harsh, it wasn't. He was just saying, Mom, what's that have to do with us? It's not my responsibility. Is it yours? That's all he's saying. All right, verse 5. Jesus' mother, and I'm not a Jewish person, but I've heard some Jewish people comment on this, and they said, well, like any good Jewish mother, she just suggests, just do whatever he says, you know? So she just it says, like, you know, I, I know Jesus, this is, but you can do something about this. So she says, do whatever he tells you. She just almost like passively, aggressively talks to the servants and says, you just do whatever this guy says to do, my son. And what a great thing. Man, maybe that's the one thing I need to hear this morning or you need to hear this morning. Do whatever Jesus tells you. That's a pretty good way to live. Just do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That might be the most important thing to hear today. Verse 6 is interesting. talks about these jars and there's a lot of uh, information there on the purification and all that, but we're not going to dig into that. But 25 gallons, let's say, because it's between 20 and 30 gallons each. So six times 25 is 150. So I'm not into this math thing very much, but my understanding is I'm not into wine either. But my understanding is if you've got 150 gallons, that's 750 fifths of wine. And if a reasonably good fifth of wine, let's say, costs $30. So now if you do that math, you're talking over $22,000 worth of wine. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Well, we'll ask that question here in a minute. But think about that. That is a lot of money. Jesus says, fill the jars. Jesus says, we're going to do this. Let's do it right. If we're doing this, let's go all the way in. Let's go for it. We're going to fill the jars. And they fill it to the very top. They maximize it. So if we're going to do something with Jesus, let's ask him for maximum impact. Let's not go for halfway. Let's not go for just what seems okay. Let's go for maximum impact because that's what Jesus likes to do. And then in verse 8, very similar to verse 6, the servants do exactly what Jesus says. Again, pretty amazing way to live. What a brilliant way to live. After this miracle, it says the disciples put their faith in Jesus in verse 11. Now, it would waver over time, but this is where we first see that they put their faith in Jesus. And maybe for someone in here, that's what you need to do today. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? It's your responsibility to do that. It can't come from a parent. It can't come from your spouse. It can't come from anyone else. You have to put your faith in Jesus. And like all of us, it will waver over time. None of us is perfect, but 
you need to put it in Jesus at some point. Maybe today you need to do that. Michael Card, just giving kind of an overview of this picture, writes this. When John's readers hear Jesus' first miracle, their minds would immediately turn to the god Dionysius. On more than one occasion, his myth, this is Dionysus' myth, includes stories of Dionysus turning water into wine. Interesting. There was a large cult in Ephesus dedicated to Dionysius. His image is even found on the mosaic floor of one of the wealthy homes. They understood the story as proof that Jesus had the power to take back from the pagan world the illusion of its power to transform. Dionysius was a myth. Jesus was flesh and blood, known to John himself, who had witnessed in real life Jesus' power and glory. So again, cultural things are here that we need to dig into to get some additional meaning. So those are some good, important thoughts just on some general principles from these verses. But there's more to this that's going on. I think one of the things that we find out through this story is this. It it destroys some common misconceptions about God. People will say, well, you know, God just doesn't want me to have any fun. He's just like, he's a killjoy. God is at a wedding party, people, and his job, he decides, is to keep the festivities going. How about that? Well, yeah, but God always seeks the spotlight. You know, he always wants all the attention to be brought to him. Jesus does this miracle very much in the background, and he does it not to benefit himself. He does it just to benefit other people. Well, God likes to shame people. See where they've messed up and pointed out. It's the exact opposite here. This family would be shamed if the wine ran out. This, this was a cultural faux pas. This would be horrible. And so Jesus steps in and takes potential shame away from a family. He protects their reputation. Also, some people will say, well, God is into the real strict thing, all the rules. Well, he's not into that. But God is also not into universalism. He's not into you can do whatever you want, and that's okay as well. There's always this tension between holiness, doing the right thing, and life, and how the the Sabbath, for example, isn't made for, people aren't made to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for our benefit. There's always that tension. And Jesus always walks it perfectly. He steps right down the middle, and he gets it. And I love that about Jesus. I love that he's able to to come into real-world situations and do something behind the scenes at times, something unexpected, something to protect me, to protect you from destruction and shame, from a train wreck, from a car wreck that's coming. Joy and celebration balanced with holiness and purity. Jesus is not drunk here. The Bible is not condoning drunkenness. The Bible is saying, you know what? Life is good, but keep it in the right balance. God is not out to spoil your fun, people. God created you to enjoy life. He created you for joy. He created you with desires and pleasures. And when you keep those within the boundaries God has has set up, it's unbelievably cool. All right, so those might be some things that God wants you to remember this week. But I want to focus on one more thing that as I studied this week, it just kind of jumped out at me. It's, it's a takeaway, I think, um, for all of us. How does this miracle of Jesus, this story, how does it remind us that we're supposed to imitate him? 
in what ways are we encouraged to do that? And this jumped out at me again as I was studying. The Holy Spirit brought this to mind from verse 4. When Jesus says, my hour hasn't arrived. This is not the only time in John that Jesus says, this isn't it. This is not the most important thing that I'm here for. Jesus always remains focused on the main thing. So Jesus is saying, my purpose here on earth isn't only to perform beneficial miracles for people, which creating wine from water will do. It will be a benefit to the family. Jesus says, my my only purpose on earth is not to heal the sick. It's not to make lame people people able to walk. It's not to cure blindness. It's not even to raise people from the dead. That's not my only mission. I'm here not only to elevate the poor people in your society and the marginalized, and again, especially the position of women. He does that, but that's not his main focus. His main focus is is not to talk about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, your kingdom come. That's not his main focus. He's not here only to do that. Jesus is not here only to teach us about who God is and who we are, and not here only to start the church. Jesus is not here only to clarify this huge amount of laws and the prophets and just say, would you just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? That's not the only thing Jesus is here to do. Now, Jesus did all of those great things and more. And Jesus did the main thing, the main reason that he came. When Jesus says, my hour has not arrived, what is he talking about? What is his hour? It's his mission. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to be living water and the bread of life. Jesus came as the way and the truth and the life. Jesus became sin for us, separated from God on the cross, so we didn't have to be separated from God. We celebrated that in communion. Jesus came to rise from the grave. Jesus came to prove and demonstrate and actually win over death and sin. That is why Jesus came. And he always, always, always keeps his focus on that main thing. So maybe imitating Jesus here isn't about you trying to figure out how you're going to make water from wine or the opposite. I can maybe, and I couldn't even do that. I couldn't make wine from water and I don't think you can either. I couldn't do the opposite. So what is it that we're supposed to do here? Again, some of the things we've already seen. But maybe this is it. Maybe the the thing we can gain from this text is that we are supposed to stay on mission and bless people along the way. Stay on the mission that God has given us and bless people along the way as we do that. Jesus never loses his focus. He's never diverted. He stays on course. He knows his mission, and he always pursues his purpose. He always does that. And as followers of Jesus, we need to imitate that example always. We should never lose our main purpose, our main focus. We should never get diverted. We should stay on course. 
and the mission, since it's about people, see, Jesus, it always fits that you would bless people along the way. In Luke chapter 15, there's a very famous story about a man. He's traveling on the road, and he gets beaten up. He's robbed, and he's left to die. Along comes a, a very important religious leader, Pharisee. He walks by. He, he's on the same road. He sees the man. He sees the need that this man has. And he goes to the other side of the road, and he keeps going. And then a scribe does the same thing, a, a very important, again, religious official sees the need of this person, bypasses him, and keeps going. And then there's this Samaritan, which again, culturally, is like the enemy of the Jewish people. They, they did not like each other. So this man comes along, and he sees the man in need, and he stops, and he helps him. The, the religious leaders are too busy to stop. They've got to go do other stuff. Or they're too important. That's not my job. Surely someone else can take care of that. I'm on to more important things. They probably didn't stop because of the ritual regulations. If they touched this man who needed care, they would be impure. How am I supposed to serve God if I can't serve God so I can't help this guy? The Samaritan just says, wow, that person needs help. I should probably help him. You see, too often we don't help because we're like the, the religious people. We're too busy. We're too tired. We don't think it's our responsibility. Maybe we're too important. Or even worse, our focus is so hyper-focused on God that we think, I, I just I can't do that. The rules say I can't go to that place. The rules say I can't do this thing. And if I do, then that's going to keep me from doing everything that God wants me to do. The scribes and the Pharisees, those guys, they were focused on the hyper-religious rules of the day. It's possible to be so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. And I confess, I've been there. Don't ever blame God for you not helping somebody. That's on you. That's on me. The Pharisees would get frustrated with Jesus because he would break the rules, he would break the laws, he would break the Sabbath. But Jesus always kept the focus on people. Relational focus. Jesus didn't debate. He just served. And, and this next statement is for me. Maybe it's for you. If you have time to watch sports or Netflix or the news or time to argue on social media, you have time to serve people. You have time to be on mission with God. And you're going to make a bigger impact and a more positive impact by doing that. See, Jesus doesn't ignore people along the way. He blesses them. He sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. He serves them. He feeds thousands of people who otherwise would go without food. He heals blind people and lame people and sick people and he raises the dead. 
Jesus elevates the marginalized people in society. Jesus makes wine from water to save a family from having their reputation ruined. But that's not the main reason that Jesus came. So why does he do that? Why does Jesus do those things? Because he can and because he cares. Jesus is always on mission and Jesus always blesses people along the way. So as we imitate Jesus, we must always be on mission and always bless people along the way. And I love how our church is walking through that tension, trying to figure that out. I love how you guys are serving people. It's awesome. We're supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But remember along the way what Jesus did as well. You see, you don't have to save the world. It's already been saved. So we don't have to do everything Jesus did, but we do point people to Jesus. And along the way, maybe we'll break some misconceptions about God. Let people know that God is, is for them. He cares about them. And as we live out our mission and our vision in a thousand different ways, we can bless people along the way. Impacting one life at a time. There was a guy who was a piano salesman. He worked for a company in St. Louis. In his sales district, they kept getting a, a letter. It came all the time. It came consistently. There was this lady who was poor. She wanted to get a piano for her granddaughter. She couldn't afford it. So she said, if you will bring me a piano, I will pay you $10 a week for 52 weeks. And they laughed. You can't buy a piano for $520, not a piano piano. So they just ignored it. Eventually, this guy, this salesman, ended up going out independently. And somehow the lady found out that he was still a piano salesman, and she started addressing the letters to him personally. They came to his house. Would you please, for $10 a week, for 52 weeks, provide a piano. This little girl really wants to learn how to play. No, I can't do that. It's not possible. Kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. Finally, one day, he had a piano on his truck. And he had this sense that, I know what I'm supposed to do with that piano. So he delivered it to this lady's house. And for the next 52 weeks, $10 would come. He said sometimes it would come in an envelope and all was in it was change. Well, about 20 years later, this guy was at a big grand festival at a, at a convention center, the hotel lobby convention. And uh, he heard somebody playing piano. He's like, wow, that's, she does a really nice job. He was a bit of a piano player himself. Most piano salespeople are, you know, they have some interest themselves. So he went and, and talked to this lady on her break, and she recognized him. She said, you sold my grandmother a piano for $10 a week, didn't you? I remember doing that. Are you that little girl? Yeah. 
She didn't have enough money to take piano lessons, but she would listen to the radio and just do her best to imitate those songs. And she learned how to play piano at her church. And it changed her life. She ended up getting a music scholarship and studying music in college. Because Joe, the guy in the story, said, I can, I can do something about that. He cared enough to do something. 